Well, good morning. It's really good uh, to be here. Um, it's been a while since I've been here. I don't think I've met uh, all of you, but I do uh, remember many of you guys from um, years ago. Uh, we moved to Boston nine years ago for me to begin a, a ministry at MIT, and during those first couple long uh, years, um, I had the joy of being uh, here and sharing the, uh, God's word with you, and I was really grateful for those times as just as a young minister and just seeing you guys continue to faithfully worship um, here. It's, it's, it's really good to be back. So I'm going to read uh, our text, which is from Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. A couple months ago, uh, our family had two-week spring break back in March, and uh, we were able to visit a place that's very... Uh, near to my heart, and yet a place that has um, been very far as the years have gone by. It was my first time in the motherland in 20 years, and it was for my wife and our two kids, uh, their first time ever. And being back there was such a, it was such a sweet time. Um, uh, for me, it reawakened uh, distant memories that um, of a place that still remains home to me, and yet it was very disorienting as, you know, I, you know, go going back after 20 years, as I'm now realizing how far the, the distance from the east and the west is, and yet at the same time how much and how fast things have changed. And uh, growing up, I remember having a good life. Uh, but I also saw uh, the cruelties of life. I saw the deep divisions uh, in our land and in our people, in, in, in a 
small country with people that seemed in such unity and solidarity. I saw how our society was divided into two groups of people, the haves and the have-nots, winners and losers. And um, I, re I remember watching Parasite, um, and when it won a few Oscars, one for Best Picture, Best Director, but it was the way it won Best Original Screenplay that I particularly appreciated, uh, especially its profound depictions of the deep divisions across our people. Some people, like the Kim family in the movie, live beneath others. They are struggling to keep their heads above water, literally and figuratively. They are down in the dumps, literally and figuratively. It is in the dumps that they must go for free Wi-Fi. And they can't even eat their peasant meals without the stink, bunk, stink bugs getting in their way. And whether it's the stink bugs or the dirty socks hanging over their dining table, we see in the opening scene that life for the kins stink. And in this scene, you see an exterminator come by, uh, and he's about to spray the streets, and they're living un beneath the streets, which actually... Last year in the summertime, there was some historic flooding and there's been some movement to ban those subterranean homes there in Seoul. But, you know, you see the exterminator come by and instead of closing their windows, the dad would say, no, let's keep the windows open. We can get free pest control that way. And I remember growing up and every couple of weeks it was spray day and I would be able to look down 100 or so feet below and just see this amazing just rush of smoke just go out in every direction. And of course I would, if the windows were open, make sure that they were closed. Growing up in the motherland, I was taught at a far too early age that I and our family were winners. We were winners not only because we lived above the realm of pests and peasants, we were winners precisely because we were American. We represented democracy and capitalism, those two very things that would divide our country and our people, not only into the haves and have-nots, but into the north and the south. La uh, last year in our ministry at MIT, uh, we took a look at a different parable each week. And parables are stories or some similitudes that illustrate some truth about reality. It takes what we can see to show what we cannot see. And I'm struck by the way movies or certain TV shows offer a modern-day parable of something so absurd it cannot possibly be true but may actually be closer to reality than we might think. Parables are believable and unbelievable at the same time. They are powerful because they show something true about ourselves that we might not want to believe about ourselves that we may not be able to see about ourselves. Our passage this evening, or this morning is a parable. I'm used to uh, preaching in the evenings, <laughs> uh, both at, uh, on campus and at churches. So our passage this morning is a parable. This parable, the parable of a rich man and Lazarus, depicts the juxtaposition of wealth and poverty, the fragmentation of humanity, the deep divisions and chasms that exist across socioeconomic classes and in eternity 
and the callousness of the hearts of the proud. The parable takes a sober look at the irony of being the haves and attributing that to the blessing of God. And of how natural it is to look down at the have-nots and attribute their misery to their own failures and their deserved curse and judgment of God. The rich man here starts off as a winner and ends up in a place called Hades. Parabolically, the reversal of fortunes can indicate more than the sudden retraction of good fortunes. It can reveal that beneath the floors of the mansions of the rich, there may be things about their own homes that they cannot see. This man cannot have imagined that his good life would amount to anything less than perpetual luxury and comfort. In his eyes, there was nothing wrong with his lifestyle. In fact, it validated his assumptions about the blessings of God. The man is a symbol of the carefree life, nominally religious, though he's less religious than he might think, with an extravagant, luxurious lifestyle. He is indeed a man of privilege, and if he had any power, he did not store them all. He is, this is the last passage of chapter 16, chapter 16 in the beginning, there's another parable there, a parable of the unjust steward, and this rich man is the foil to the unjust steward, the one who used his unrighteous wealth to make friends, and the rich man here did not. And as a result, he cannot be received into the eternal dwellings, which we see in that other parable. Speaking of that parable, the parable of the unjust steward, that parable is very much about money. Jesus makes that uh, very explicit. And this one is less directly about money, but the economic or financial concerns cannot be ignored. Jesus tells that parable and this parable in the presence of Pharisees, who he says were lovers of money and also very religious. Now, the rich man here, there seems to be a problem with his extravagant living. He is decked out in custom-fitted, handmade designer shirts and suits of the finest and most luxurious materials. Purple dye was so rare and expensive because of the very particular process of obtaining these dyes from certain marine snails. And he dines like a prince. I mean, can you imagine waking up every morning, lobster, Benedict, maybe some Wagyu steak for dinner. He does not have a bad bottle of wine in the cellar. And he eats and drinks like this every single day. Now, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? I mean, if you've got the money... Isn't this a perfectly valid way to spend it? Have a good time. Celebrate life. The scriptures even say that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That would be a nice Bible verse to memorize. You're wealthy. Now, in in the previous two chapters... Jesus seems to have no issues with parties. He shows up at parties. He talks about parties. He gives three parables in chapter 15 about the lost being found, each one ending up with a party. And after all that, we have this parable. So the question is, what is so bad about this rich man? What is the great sin that he committed that he ends up in such a terrible place? 
He seeks a carefree life, a life of immense comfort. Is that so bad? Actually, this parable shows that comfort is not inherently evil. For there are two characters in this story that relishes comfort. One is a rich man. The other is a wretchedly poor and miserable guy named Lazarus. One does it for a moment every day in his own home. The other does so in the state of eternity, consummation, and restoration. Now, the rich man had a gate. And on one side, he lived in luxury and honor. And on the other side, Lazarus lived in great poverty and misery. Now, Lazarus was covered with sores. He was poor, hungry, he had no home. And in his hunger, he desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Now, this isn't like, this isn't like your pet dog sitting under your dining table waiting for some crumbs to fall. Uh, what, what the wealthy did was they would use pieces of bread like napkin, wipe their mouth off, throw, uh, throw it away. It'll end up in the trash. Uh, that was his best um, chance for something to eat. Lazarus is a parabolic piece of trash. His life stunk. The only nourishment he received was from dogs, which rendered him unclean. He was a total societal reject, and God loves him. The gate could have and should have been opened. The rich man had the means to provide some alleviation to Lazarus, perhaps a decent meal. Some health care would have been nice. But the gate remained closed. Lazarus never got better. He died and was unceremoniously carried away by the angels. The rich man also died. He reserved a proper and honorable burial. And then the scene shifts to the afterlife. And this is where it gets interesting. Um, the rich man ends up in a place called Hades where uh, the accommodations there are not up to standards. And he calls out to Abraham, seeing that Abraham is dining with Lazarus. And he, he, he calls to Father Abraham. It's ironic that he calls him Father Abraham, but he, says, he calls out to Father Abraham to have pity on him. And to send Lazarus with a, some cool, refreshing water to cool him off because it's really hot there. And here's the thing. This guy has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Even as he is burning in Hades, he sees himself as a somebody who can command a nobody to fetch him drinks. So Abraham carefully explains his situation. First, you have had a lifetime worth of good things, while Lazarus had a lifetime of his own in deep misery. Second, in case you have not noticed, your situations have completely reversed. Now he's got it good, and you not so much. Lastly, this game is over. You have a probability of zero of winning. There's this great chasm between you and Lazarus. You will never, ever cross that chasm. Never, ever. And the rich man, who have probably never had to take no for an answer, even after three clear points by Abraham, still falls back on his elitist instincts. He thinks, okay, maybe if Lazarus can't send me some cool, refreshing water, maybe he can deliver a personal note to his five equally wealthy brothers. 
warning them of what might happen to them if they continue in their ways. And Abraham rebuffs and says, look, your brothers have had a whole Bible worth of messages. If they really need a warning, all they need to do is pick up their Bibles and read them. Essentially what he's saying. And so the, the, the man makes one final plea. And he gets pretty spiritual here, making an appeal to the dead. He explains that his brothers will listen. They will even repent if someone comes from the dead, the other side of the grave. That will get their attention. And Abraham responds, and I quote, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that's how the, the parable ends. A few thoughts. Um, uh, first, about scripture, about salvation. This parable doesn't actually say explicitly why the rich man ends up in Hades or why Lazarus ends up where he did. It is one parable. Some truth is being conveyed, but it's one parable among the whole counsel of God. Scripture is clear that salvation is not by works, but only by grace and through faith alone. Being poor is not in and of itself going to merit a ride to heaven any more or any less than being rich or middle class. What the rich man's brothers need is not a special sign from the other side of uh, from the other side of the grave. They need the scriptures, namely Moses and the prophets, who are clear about issues of justice and assistance for the poor. They don't need more information. They don't need a sign. Certainly not for, through apparitions from the dead. The scriptures not only speak of issues of justice, it speaks ultimately of one who did rise from the dead. And a callousness towards God's word is more or less the same as a rejection of God's son who rose from the dead. He is the only hope the rich man's brothers have. Not good works, only faith in God's son. Second, a word about this place, Hades. Now, Hades is the underworld. The underworld. Scripture doesn't offer great details about life after death. Heaven and hell are spoken of, but not always in neat, tidy ways. Hades is a Greek translation of a Hebrew term called Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. And there are a few broad uses and understanding of Hades. First, it is simply the abode of the dead. Second, it is an intermediate waiting area for the wicked and the righteous prior to final judgment. Third, and this is where this term Hades kind of picks up in the New Testament, it is a place of punishment for the wicked linked to the word Gehenna, which is an Aramaic word referring to a dump heap, a trash uh, area in Jewish tradition just southeast of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, Gehenna takes on the view of a consuming fire following the Last Judgment. Now, in this parable, Hades is not a waiting area prior to final judgment. It is a place of torment and suffering. And apparently where repentance is not to be found. 
there is, there is continuity of personal identity. The rich man remembers his life on earth and is in fact haunted by it. Real physical desire does not dissipate when you enter Hades. Hades is not a place of torment just for disembodied spirits. There is real human need for its creator there, just as on earth. You're still the same person in Hades as you are here. Nobody ever goes there and gets sanctified. It is too late for that. That ship has sailed. The only good time, the only time to turn from your sins and to Jesus and his righteousness before you get there. Now third, I want to return uh, to a question I posed earlier. What is, what's, what's, what's wrong with this guy? What's a bad sin he committed that he ends up in such a terrible place? Yeah, he liked fancy food and expensive clothing. Was that his greatest sin? Yes, he neglected the poor, but do you think charity and philanthropy would have helped his cause? Poverty was a problem, problem in Jesus' day. And it's a great problem today, even though we live in the most technologically and medically advanced time in human history. It's a problem because we have a way of trampling on top of one another through exploitation and greed. We have a way of narrowing our tribe from tightening our definition of who my neighbor is to doubling down on the nuclear family, often to the neglect of singles, widows, the aliens, refugees, the poor, the disenfranchised. The guy does, this guy, you can't say he lacks sympathy. He does care for people. He cares for his five brothers. And Lazarus is not only his neighbor, he is actually his brother. You don't get to call Abraham, Father Abraham, without calling Lazarus your brother. And you don't get to call Jesus your brother without receiving Lazarus as your brother. This guy soars all over his body, rummaging the dumpster for food. This guy, Lazarus, social outcast, is your neighbor and your brother. What this parable rebukes is a kind of lifestyle that does not see poverty and suffering. It rebukes the idea that possessions are strictly for one's own use and that they are ours without responsibility to God and other people. The more we think like that, the easier it is to attribute the predicament of the poor to their own laziness or poor decisions they've made. And if that's the case, why should we help the poor? Now, the man's great sin, his fatal flaw, was that he thought he was better than the poor. And in Jesus' economy, he was not. The way he looks at the poor, even from Hades, is a sure sign of his sense of entitlement and self-importance. And when we begin to believe the folly that elitism and Christianity go quite well together, at that point, we're heading down a dangerous path not only of self-deceit, but of losing the core character of the Christian faith, salvation by God's grace alone. In Galatians 3, Paul says that in Christ, there's no group that's greater than or lesser than. The church has to be a place radically countercultural to the systems and structures that deem certain groups 
greater than or lesser than in society. This is a parable told to the privileged and religious class, together with followers of Jesus. And when followers of Jesus have seen themselves as winners, deserving success and good fortunes over the losers of society, and having operated out of an elite, upper-class, socially or politically privileged Christianity, it is difficult to be salt and light in the culture we live in. It's hard to be a witness of a crucified, risen, and ascended Lord when you're accustomed to always getting your agenda and rarely having to go out of your way to help the less fortunate. When a group has for so, has for so long used its privilege and power for self-protection and self-aggrandizement, and when said group loses their seat of influence, privilege, and power in such a short time, it can serve, it can serve as a warning that sometimes in life, winners go on losing streaks, and fortunes can be flipped at eternity. Now, I believe, I believe we are in a time of contradiction and conflict, a time of decline and renewal. The American church is both economically strong and to many ethically disgraced and remaining relationally segregated. We are coming out of a time of exorbitant levels of power and privilege, and we find ourselves now on the margins, called to an exilic presence as pilgrims and priests in a very post-Christian society. And if we are to be faithful, we need not only the words of Jesus, but that of Moses, love and duty to God and fellow man, and that of the prophets, justice and peace to all, but especially the oppressed, the marginalized, and the poor. Now, Collective issues aside, the parable is a warning. It's definitely a warning. It's a warning through the rich man to each one of us personally and individually. And heeding the warning, perhaps we might seek to do something in our lives. Maybe it's to just live more simply. Or to practice hospitality, which means... Xenophilia, love for a stranger or foreigner. Or maybe it's uh, to forsake our dreams of getting rich, uh, which Jesus says is, um, as you say in Matthew, um, he basically says it's a trap. Maybe it's to forsake our dreams of getting rich and instead, instead invest in eternity which you cannot buy. Or maybe it's simply to love the poor, to serve mercy, to serve in the manner of our Lord who did not act with any sense of entitlement or self-importance or any sense of superiority when he got down on his knees to wash our feet, our dirty feet, only to rise the next day to hang on a cross for our sins. The, par- the parable is, is not only a warning, It offers eternal blessings and comfort to anybody. To any one of us who identifies with Lazarus. Now Lazarus, I've been studying the parables and I'm continuing to be struck by this parable. And Lazarus is given something by Jesus 
that no other character in any of Jesus' parables received. And there are many, many, many parables. Lazarus was given a name, which means God has helped. He is not a piece of trash. He is not a parasite. He is a person beloved by his creator, dependent on the mercies of God. So let, let me ask this question. Is God a helper of those who can help themselves? Or is God a helper of the helpless? Because what I continue to see over and over in the Gospels, and especially in Luke, is that not only does God appear to have a preferential care for the poor, but here's the point. I know I've said a lot, so I'll let Flannery O'Connor make up make my one point and that is we are all the poor we are all the poor we need the help of God not just to get over the hump of something we need his help in a life and death kind of way I said earlier that parables are powerful because they say something true about ourselves that we may not want to believe or may struggle to see. The parable is simply saying we are Lazarus. And because of our Lazarus condition, we have hope. And our only hope is in the mercies of God. And this is, this is our good news, that we were poor and sick and helpless we lived in a hell we could not escape from. We could not pass that impassable chasm from suffering to comfort. We were at the gate begging for anything from a crumb to fall on our laps. And Jesus did what the rich man refused to do. He opened the gate. And he crossed his own chasm from his life of eternal comfort to our life of pain and death. And we crossed over that chasm once and for all to a place of comfort and honor. Because Jesus became poor, he took on our poverty, our sin. He gave up his riches that we might be rich in him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we... We recognize our great poverty as we uh, just reflect on this parable. And we thank you that you do not leave us helpless, but you did something we could not even have asked for. You sent your son to die for us to raise to new life so that we might have that resurrected life in you. Help us to reflect on that and be people of mercy, of service to one another, especially to those of need, and to receive the salvation, not with an entitled spirit, but with gratitude, and so that we would live our lives with love and joy. Help us to do that this day and the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.